0: Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs
1: and the people who love them. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Michael Delgado, the Standards and Research Lead here at Good Dog. Today, I'm really excited to have a Special guest, Dr. Greg Burns. Dr. Burns is a board certified theriogenologist originally from Phoenix, Arizona. He received his veterinary degree from Colorado State University in 1996, and then entered small animal general practice in Phoenix. He returned to Colorado in 2000, where he worked as an associate veterinarian at the South Mesa Veterinary Hospital in Fort Collins, where he eventually served as their medical director for 18 years. While at South Mesa, he developed the Small Animal Reproduction Department, which included an international semen freezing and storage facility. Dr. Burns received his diplomat status in the American College of Theriogenologists in 2009, and he is currently Assistant Professor of Small Animal Reproduction at Colorado State University. Dr. Burns, thanks for being here today at the Good Dog Pod.
0: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: I guess it would be great to start off just by hearing a little bit more about your background. And when you started in veterinary school, was theriogenology the direction you thought you were going to go in? And how did you kind of develop an interest in reproductive medicine?
0: Right. So when I was in veterinary school, I started out with a strong interest in equine medicine. And so I started out my first couple of years, everybody in vet school these days, and back then, learns everything, all species. Sure and i got interested in dogs early on and so i changed my focus to canine medicine in veterinary school and then so the theory of classes were really interesting to me in vet school i didn't really see it as my focus for my career at that time but they were really interesting to me the science of reproduction especially in dogs because It was pretty limited back then it still is now compared to other species but it was pretty limited back then so i thought that science was pretty interesting so fast forward graduated from veterinary school applied for jobs and i ended up in a practice that did about 50 percent reproduction so that really kind of keyed me into hey this is really really interesting and i think the way i want to go with my career
1: cool so I guess one question too, like, did you have dogs growing up? Was that like, um... <laughs> yeah,
0: for sure, yeah, <laughs> big dog family, horses as well. So that's how I got interested in the horse thing. Gotcha. Always had dogs around. Always not many cats growing up. I have cats now, but yeah, uh, grew up in a big dog family
1: for sure. Very cool. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the reason we brought you on here is because you are an expert in artificial insemination, and we know you know the three most common methods of AI are transvaginal surgical and your specialty, I believe, which is transcervical. So what would you say that breeders need to know about each method as far as what they're considering for their breeding program if they are looking into artificial insemination?
0: Yeah, good question. So I'll start by saying the candidates that we're using are most important, and I'll come back to this probably during our discussion, but the breeding age of dogs, the prime age is really two to four years old. Once they reach five to six years old, and especially at that six-year-old mark, again, regardless of breed, their conception rates and litter size decline by as much as 50%. So I think that's really important to know right off the bat. So then you discuss the different kinds of insemination methods that we use now. Uh, transvaginal or vaginal insemination, collect the sample, use a pipette, go into the cranial vaginal vault. So the part of the vaginal vault and squirt the sample in, basically infuse the sample. We used to elevate their rear end, too, for a certain amount of time. We don't really do that much anymore. Subsequent studies have come out and said that that's not really advantageous to litter size or conception rates, so we don't really do that much anymore. So that's that vaginal method or transvaginal method of insemination. And then surgical insemination, so fast forward to surgery, Transvaginal isn't too good for compromised samples. So a frozen thawed sample, conception rates are very low using vaginal insemination. So we figured we need a more aggressive type of insemination method for those compromised or attenuated weakened samples. So surgery was an option for a long time prior to transcervical insemination. Surgery is general anesthesia. So there are some inherent risks with just general anesthesia. It's a abdominal incision similar to a spay incision. Elevate the uterus. There's different ways to infuse the sample. You can put a catheter, like an IV catheter, in the lumen, or you can just use a needle. Historically, we've done those pretty frequently. Now, we don't honestly do those much anymore because of transcervical incumination, and so leading into transcervical incumination. Historically, there's been two ways to do it. One way is blindly, where you palpate their cervix Trans abdominally and stabilize it, and blindly put a specialized type of instrument in catheter and cannulate the cervical abs and infuse the sample. What we do now is video assisted transcervical insemination. So that's where we use the scope in through the vaginal vault, visualize the cervix, cannulate the cervix, catheter through the cervix, and infuse the sample. So those are the basic descriptions of each.
1: Okay seems like the technology for trans insemination has really advanced more recently. I mean, that sounds pretty technologically complicated.
0: It seems that way, right? So when we first started doing it, I've been doing it right about 20 years. So I started right about 2001 with my first insemination. We used a rigid human cystic urethroscope. We didn't have specialized dog equipment back then. A little bit challenging because it wasn't made for that procedure for dogs dogs have some unique anatomy with the way that their cervix is set up and the way their vaginal vault is set up. So they have some unique anatomic challenges. But about 2006, I think, or seven, there was a specialized scope that came out for transcervical insemination in dogs that helped us a lot. So it was the length, the diameter, everything was just improved for dogs at that time.
1: Great. And all three of these artificial insemination procedures people can go to a reproductive veterinarian to have them done, correct?
0: Yes, correct. And I think that's a good point too. Having someone with experience
1: mm-hmm. who
0: knows how to collect a sample, evaluate the sample and process that sample appropriately and then perform whatever procedure would be indicated. So again, we don't do much surgery. In fact, in Europe, no surgical inseminations. the Southern hemisphere, Australia, New Zealand, I think those are soon gonna be they're not going to be able to do those anymore there. And then transcervical is really superior to surgery for sure.
1: Okay. And also superior to transvaginal. I mean, it seems like transvaginal is kind of the low tech.
0: Yeah. Method. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It really is. And so I think maybe I've done one or two transvaginal inseminations in the last few years. Okay. Transcervical, the length of time that it takes to do a transcervical insemination, knock on wood, is typically very quick, you know, within about 15 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, no sedation, no anesthesia required. Having that sample and visualizing it going through the cervix is is far superior to transvaginal insemination.
1: Okay, that's pretty fast. Now, are there any risks to transcervical insemination?
0: So we get that quite often, that question.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, first off, the risks of transcervical artificial insemination are lower than natural breeding. So the things that we think about are trauma so that's Mm -hmm. one thing the trauma of natural breathing can be significant and so what we're using is a very small scope they stand if they move we pull the scope out those sorts of things yeah so the risk of trauma is very very low infection rates are no higher with transferable inflammation than they would be with natural breathing so the risks with an experienced operator are really very low
1: Great. And can you discuss how breeders can prep their dogs for this procedure as far as we're always trying to impress upon people like, you know, the ways to reduce stress of veterinary visits and different procedures for their dogs. So do you have any advice for people who are considering having this done for what you do to make it less stressful for the dogs?
0: Yeah. So we do a few things, but as far as the owners go, it's funny because I always say, oh, just do what you normally do. And one time I had this client come and the dog was really out of breath and tachycardic and the temperature was up. And I was like, wow, what'd you guys do this morning? She goes, well, I jogged here
1: oh. <laughs> and I
0: jogged five miles. That's what I normally do. And I said, oh gosh, I should have said, don't do what You normally do. But so I do what you normally do, right? If you normally go and because we work with performance dogs as well. And mm-hmm. if your normal training is to go on a two mile swim in the morning, maybe avoid that. Sure yeah so the prep piece would be just do your normal thing don't go on a long hike or run or swim or anything like that before you come in what we do and what we found over the years is it's really advantageous to have the owners present and attending and at the front end so the way that we have it set up is we have a monitor facing us at the rear end of the dog and then we also have a monitor at the front facing the front end of the dog so the owner or the handler can be at the front end of the dog giving treats, just having that presence there. So I think having the owners present or handlers for the procedure is really, really advantageous for us.
1: Nice. Yeah,
0: it's better for the dog and then it gives them the sense of, oh gosh, what is this procedure all about? So they get to see it.
1: Cool. Now I know you have transcervical insemination experience with other species besides dogs. I mean, I know you mentioned horses, but I read that you got to work with AMR Tigers. So I'd love to hear how you got that opportunity.
0: Yeah, right. So conservation. So they've done transervical insemination in many other species through the years. Dogs were relatively new. I think late 80s just started to be developed. Early 90s, the paper finally came out to describe the procedure. But before that, they were doing it in other species. So I had the opportunity to get trained for other species. And so I got on a team, geographically, there were a few veterinarians from across the country. So I was kind of the Rocky Mountain region guy, was contacted from a group from Omaha, and they were going to do a transcervical insemination on a tiger at the Denver Zoo. And so I got to be part of that team and do that transcervical insemination there. And since then, I've done a few more for the team.
1: Was
0: the tiger anesthetized? Oh, yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, yeah, it was quiet and so the exotic species thing even, so I have some experience with black-footed birds with some other endangered species, but yeah, yeah, just getting them under uh, general anesthesia is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Cool. I also read about some of your work with XY Incorporated on using sex-sorted sperm to inseminate dogs. So I was really curious about this procedure. Is this like something that, you know, is being used currently? Or is this the wave of the future? Are people going to be able to like predetermine the sex of their puppies?
0: So that work was done in the mid-2000s. Late 90s, they started sex-sorting sperm cells for different species. Finally, they figured out how to do it just right in dogs. Mm-hmm. We presented a paper, I think it was 06 or 07, at the International Umbrella Transfer Society, where we actually got a pregnancy using uh, sex sorted sperm cells. And it's probably not going to be commercially available. It's pretty labor intensive. So we only get about 12 to 15 million sperm cells per hour of sorting. So. It sounds like a lot, right? But we need 100 million or so for the insemination. So that sorting technology maybe isn't great for dogs. It is currently commercially available for other species. So bulls and stallions are sorted, I think, quite frequently and with high success rates, but I don't think it's going to be. The other thing is cryopreservation. So when we sort it, what we want to do is to be able to freeze it and use it later. And I don't think we're that good at freezing sorted dog sperm yet.
1: Okay. So nobody get too excited about choosing the sex of your puppies. Okay. So in doing a little reading about you and your work, I saw that you have a long history of working closely with dog breeders beyond just reproductive services. Like I noticed you've organized health clinics for breeders. And I'd love to hear your take because we're always really interested in Helping facilitate the breeder veterinarian relationship, like what really helps that relationship thrive?
0: Yeah, and that started early on in my career. That practice that I was in, it was part about fifty or sixty percent reproduction.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: There was a handler who had a facility down the street, and so a professional dog handler. He would bring client dogs in and his own dogs in very frequently, and I learned very early on to have that relationship and listen especially those professional handlers and those professional dog people, which most of our breeders are, right? Yeah. And so they really know their breeds. They really know their lines. They really know what's going on. And so early on in my career, I learned to listen. So that's number one. That's, a, that's the biggest thing as a professional. I really listen and take into account. And sometimes we have a discussion and we say, oh, well, no, that's not really a thing. Or, you know, we have that dialogue back and forth. So I think that communication piece is really important. And over the years, what I've tried to do is have is have outreach events. And so we'll have CE events with local dog clubs. We'll have national CE events with regional specialties and things like that. And then we have the health clinic piece as well. So I think having that outreach as part of your, at least for me, has just been great. Because then I learn what the breeder community is thinking and doing and those sorts of things. And it's a two-way street because those breed clubs are really responsible for advancing and sponsoring some of the research in their breeds.
1: Yeah, excellent. What's one of your favorite things about your job?
0: I think that. So yeah, I like teaching, right? So before I was at the university, I did that with just all layperson, CE events, you know, individual education for our staff, things like that. Now at the university level, I get to teach students, residents, interns, and then other faculty, you know, what we're all about in the repro and breeding community. So I think that piece for sure, by far, is the favorite thing I do. I'm lucky, right? So most of the things that we do are elective. And so we get nice dogs. We get well-behaved dogs. I don't work on too many sick ones, that sort of thing. And we get to see puppies a lot. (laughs)
1: So. <laughs> yeah, seeing puppies is always a plus. Yeah. And you're still doing clinical work at the vet school, correct? You have a clinical reproductive service, yeah. so you are still seeing clients.
0: Absolutely. So we have myself, Dr. Holland said she's the head oh, of yeah. the department here. Yes. And the two of us run the service and we're on service every day. We, one of the two of us will be on service every day. We Also a resident that's on every single day and a technical support staff as well.
1: Fantastic. So what advice would you give members of our breeder community who might be struggling with getting their dogs pregnant?
0: So first off, I would say it's funny because we always seem to blame the female. (laughs) So rule out the male first. That's the first thing I would say is always rule out the male. It's really easy. Do a collection and check the male first. So make sure that it's not the male. And then make sure that you're dealing with those individuals who are in their prime reproductive age. Oh. So two to four, once they reach five to six, you know, really start looking for either different ones to breed or replacements, that sort of thing. Okay. So go down that road. It's hard with performance dogs because sometimes they're not titled appropriately until they're five or six. And that's the first time they start to breed them. So those are wow. tough cases. Yeah. So make sure you're dealing with that. Make sure you're following up in all the general health things that our breeders typically do anyway, as far as a good deworming protocol, vaccination protocol, et cetera, and be realistic. That's going to be my last thing. And by realistic, I mean, sometimes we'll go to a certain point with our patients. In fact, I was writing an email this morning, and I'm going to have to say, okay, I think we're done with this one, right? Because now left on the list of things that could be causing this, we can't treat any of those things. So sometimes it's time to move on. So really be realistic with your expectations.
1: Fantastic. It's been really great talking to you. We'd like to end with a fun question about dogs. So my question for you is, what dog breed would you choose to be and why?
0: I think probably not like a pit bull or German shepherd or Rottweiler or anything like that. I think not a terrier. I have a terrier. I love terriers, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not a terrier. I think more like a golden retriever. Nice. just like a good patient companion that sort of thing i think
1: you're easy to get along with
0: i think so <laughs> yeah i think more something like that and i love goldens too yeah,
1: yeah they're good dogs well yeah. thank you so much so before we wrap up if breeders in the denver area need canine reproductive services like where can you be found and what do you recommend to other breeders looking for reproductive help that maybe are not near you
0: So you can go to the SFT, the Society for Theriogenology website, if you're for sure you're not on the Front Range of Colorado, and look for veterinarians who have a specific interest in reproduction. I think that's a good resource. Great. So you'll find them in your area who are members of that society. The American College of Theriogenologists also have board certified reproductive specialists that would be in your area. As far as Colorado goes, and we have clients that come from as far as, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and things like that, they drive up, it's eight hours or seven hours for them. So Front Range of Colorado, we're at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital. And the best way for that contact there is probably call initially, and that's 970-297-5000. And that's the Veterinary Teaching Hospital. And we're in the Small Animal Reproduction Department. If you just ask for that, they'll get hold of us.
1: Great, well, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you and take care.
0: Yeah, thank you.